Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, a project from Golf Australia magazine to explore the myriad reasons that seemingly otherwise sensible and intelligent people get hooked on this absurd game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm your guide for these journeys into the psyche of those for whom the game is more than just a game and has indeed become a part of the fabric of everyday life. You can call them golf nerds, golf addicts, golf junkies, whatever you like. But as golfers, we all know at least one. And if we're honest, many of us would count ourselves amongst their number. Our guest on episode 21 is an unashamedly self-confessed golf nerd. But unlike most of the rest of us, she also happens to be one of the very best golfers in the history of the game. Seven majors and a Hall of Fame career are in some ways just the beginning for Kari Webb. Because as remarkable as it is to consider, in her own mind, the most important part of Kari's golfing life is really just getting started. As you'll hear in this interview, Kari's mission now is to make the world, and in particular the golf and sporting worlds, a fairer and better place for the women who will follow. She's not suggesting her own life in golf has been bad. In fact, quite the opposite. But she also knows that it can and should be better for those who come next. This is a long chat, and I can't thank Kari enough for her extraordinary generosity with her time. But more than that, I can't thank her enough for her honesty and thoughtful answers on every topic we touched. I hope you enjoy this chat with Kari Webb even a quarter as much as I did, because if you do, then I know you will have had a very good time. Well, Kari Webb, I suppose the first thing we've got to do is say thank you for taking the time, although at this particular juncture, there's not much to do in the way of golf. What's the situation there in Florida where you are? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was thinking how how many years it had been since I slept three consecutive months in the same bed, <laughs> and I had I think I'd have to be 11 or 12 years old. Um, you know, I've been travelling that long. So, um, yeah, I've definitely got plenty of time on my hands to do these sorts of things now. Indeed. Well, the podcast is called The Thing About Golf, and that's our sort of jumping off point normally. I wanted to pose the question a little bit differently to you, rather than just asking what's the thing about golf. Finish this sentence for me. The thing about golf is? Uh, The thing about golf is uh, it's a part of my DNA. I don't remember a time in my life where golf hasn't been a part of it. Um, so I feel like golf is as much a part of my life as anything else in it. Yeah. It's probably a million different things to you over the course of time. And I imagine it changes from when you're eight years old and first discover it. And now looking back on an extraordinarily successful career, let's go all the way back to the eight year old Curry. What was it that grabbed you about golf? Can you remember? Yeah, I, I, I believe I can. I think it went back before I was eight years old. Um, eight, eight years old was when I officially got my first set of real cut-down clubs, so that's when I officially say that I started playing golf. But um, golf or being at a golf club was a part of um, my family, so my parents and my grandparents took up the game around the time I was born, and I was the eldest of three girls. And the Air Golf Club's just a small country club in, in North Queensland, and um, it was a fairly young membership, I, I, especially now when I look at the membership there, it was a fairly young membership back then um, with lots of uh, uh, husbands and wives uh, that were members and had kids around uh, my age. So mum and dad would play golf on a Saturday afternoon and my grandparents would look after us and then bring us out around five o'clock and 
mum and dad would be upstairs having a few drinks in the clubhouse and we'd just be running amok downstairs, running through bunkers and all sorts of things. But it was more just the atmosphere of being there. Like I I guess I saw that mum and dad enjoyed being there and then I had fun being there with uh, a lot of the kids and a lot of those kids ended up I ended up starting junior golf with. So um, I think it was just the atmosphere of, of being out there that and then and then playing um, with my grandparents on on a Sunday morning with the plastic set of clubs from the age of four, they would take me out and and wanting to get a real set of clubs because as I as I got to six years, seven years old, I was obviously too strong for those the plastic clubs back forty years ago. Nothing like what you can get today. So um, I was hitting the the head was flying off further than the than I was hitting the ball. So. Um, yeah, they promised me for my eighth birthday that they'd get me a set of cut-down clubs, which, um, yeah, that was me off and running. You never really had a chance by the sound of it, Kari. You were infected early and that was kind of the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I, play, I played all sorts of sport growing up, but um, golf was the one that stuck. And I think it was, um, it was probably more the individuality of it. Um, I didn't have to rely on other people to perform well for – for to have success, I guess. Um, you know, it all fell on my shoulders. We'll, we'll come back to some of that um, team sports and the role of that in, in the game in this day and age because it's a very different game. What you're describing back then at the Air Golf Club, we see a lot less of, it feels like, in the modern era. The golf club is just a place to hang out. Or maybe it's just in cities. Have you got any thoughts on that? Because there's a lot of hand-wringing about grow the game and bring people to the game and millennials got to play the game. But what you're describing there, I wonder if there's less of that in this day and age and why don't we sell that? I think most of us have probably seen that fabulous picture of you sitting on the, the buggy seat of, I think it was your, your granddad's pool buggy, you sitting on it and him pushing him along. Why don't we sell that? Yeah. They're wonderful moments, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, and, and I think that selling the family sport is something that's really important. If, you know, a husband has a wife that plays golf, obviously – he can play more golf and then if, if the kids get into it, they're all out there doing it together. I think that for me, the stigmas and the stereotypes around what, what golf is like and and, um, and that does exist, um, you know, the elitism and, and – um, It's the problem, isn't it? We know, can't deny it because it's absolutely real and we all see yeah, it quite often. Um, I, never, I never witnessed that. Even going to Townsville and playing, got up into juniors and stuff, um, I never experienced any sorts of restrictions on kids playing. You know, obviously you couldn't play Saturday afternoon when the members were playing, but men and women played on Saturdays. You know, it wasn't um, wow. just for men. And That's still an issue um, today at some places, Karen. Yeah, so I, I never saw any of that until I got to a level where I was travelling down to Brisbane and then interstate um, to play in bigger tournaments that, that actually existed. And and I I suddenly felt really out of my comfort zone because I, I wasn't, even within the state, um, you know, back then it was the QLGU and the QGU and, you know, even I didn't even fit the mould for the QLGU. You know, I was um, this kid from North Queensland, country kid. My grandma made my golf shorts and my golf pants and, um, you know, I probably didn't fit the the golf club uh, look um, down, down in Brisbane. And I think there was roadblocks there for me along the way. But I, and I felt some of those uncomfortable moments that, you know, I had to, 
um, unpick the hem of my shorts um, because they were less than a centimeter too short um, (laughs) when I was a kid. Um, You know, that didn't happen in North Queensland. That happened when I was in the bigger cities. Two things about that. Uh, What does that do in the longer term, which I'll let you think about while you answer the first question, to go on and become one of the greats for the game? Uh, and thinking back about all those things, and I wonder whether you still occasionally have that discomfort ever in certain places. But more to the point, what you're describing there, is that a city-country thing that you're talking about there, or has there been a change in golf, the difference between Toowoomba, Air and mm. I think it still exists in, in in the bigger clubs around the country. I think those clubs are hard to be members of. To You know, you're on a wait list forever, and they're the most expensive clubs t- to join. So Are they about you know, golf? Normally... Are those clubs about uh, golf? <laughs> I think there's a portion of those members that it is. It's literally they love golf and they want to be a um, a member of a great golf course. And then there's the, um, you know, the social um, advantage to being a member and being able to say that you're a member there that, you know, a portion of members would that would be all they cared about, not how good the golf course was. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I think growing up in the country gives me a, um, a different perspective on on that. But, you know, it's not just within Australia. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the courses I practice at over here in Florida are um, private golf courses and cost, you know, they're not even ranked in the top 100 in, in the U.S. and they cost way more money than they would to join Royal Melbourne or any of the best courses in Australia, way more money. Um, and so there's there's that you know, stuffiness at times um, at those clubs too. But that's never been what golf is for me. Geographically, Air and Boynton Beach, Florida are a long way apart. You've been in Florida for a long time now in America. What's your relationship with America and Australia and, and all of those things? Well, um, yeah, I've lived uh, in the US more than half my life now. So, uh, And I've lived in this house um, just under half my life. Creature of so habit. I've lived in the yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like change. <laughs> I've yeah. I've lived in this house for twenty two years. So um, I I consider this as much my home as I do when I go home to Townsville and and Air and in North Queensland. It fairly humble beginnings. I think your dad was a builder. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. He was a builder. Owned his own company. That's honest. Hard. Proper work, isn't it? That's the battling Australian we talk about when we have these political discussions. From there to where you are is a long way. There's a big difference mm-hmm. there. What's that journey been like for you? I, I guess I think not the money and sense of money, but what role does money play in in golf and a career? Because we're going to talk shortly about opportunities for women and young women coming up. We know you've done quite well out of the game, not as well as if you were a bloke. We'll talk about that as well yeah. with the same achievements. But what role does money play in there for a kid from air whose dad was a builder? I imagine worked probably five and a half days a week, most weeks, and then came home and yeah. worked on your yes, own house because your yeah. mum wanted bathrooms renovated and laundries built and <laughs> yeah. all those other sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. What's that like for current? Um, money never was a part of um, me dreaming to be a professional golfer. Um, I think I understood that professional golfers played for money but for me it was yeah I guess like because I was 11 years old when I told my um, parents that I wanted to be a professional golfer and it was right after I'd 
been down to watch the um, 86 Queensland Open and, and see Greg Norman play for the first time. And for me, it was just the atmosphere of a golf tournament. Um, uh, thousands and thousands of people turned up to, to watch that event. Greg had just won the British Open that year and was number one in the world. So um, there was huge galleries and, uh, you know, a real buzz. Um, and I just thought it was the coolest thing that, um, you could play golf and people come and watch you, um, and you could aim you could aim to be the best in the world. So, I mean, I think in the back of my mind, I knew that there was money at that age, but that wasn't wasn't it. I mean, obviously, as you get older, you understand because it's always advertised what the winner wins, and so when you start thinking about that, you're like, oh wow, that oh you can make some money yeah. doing it too. So, um, but it wasn't. That wasn't the deciding factor at the beginning. I'm guessing it can't be. Every great player has always said money's never been a part of their thinking. And if it is, you're probably not going to become a great player because that's a that's yeah. a road to, to hell very quickly. But it does come. What happens then? So you, you know, the, the young girl from area watches her dad work, gets this giant mm. check one day. What do you remember about the first check you made, the first big check you made, what feelings you have? And what does that mean? Life changes. It must change. Yeah. Well, I guess what I can – what I considered was a huge check was my second tournament I I played um, was the Australian Ladies Masters and it was right before Christmas in '94 and I finished second to Laura Davies and made twenty five thousand and I thought I was a millionaire in one week, Carrie. Like, one week. In one week, uh, one week I made twenty five thousand and you know I'd go to the ATM just to check my balance <laughs> because I couldn't believe. I mean, two months before that it said two hundred dollars yeah. and. Now it had those extra zeros on the end, and I, I couldn't believe it. But um, yeah, I think um, it is definitely a um, a challenge. It was a challenge for me with the whole money thing because obviously my parents had never seen money like that, so I had no one in my family that could really advise me. And um, I was with IMG at the time, and I think. I couldn't have continued to play at the level I was playing at right out of the gates if I didn't have a management company that that were everywhere in the world whenever wherever I was. I bought um, houses and cars and I I didn't I didn't organize my insurance for that. I didn't I didn't organize I was paying bills and stuff. That was all done by IMG and obviously it's far better if you're a little bit more engaged but at and and I learned that <laughs> the hard way a few times, but um, at 21 and 22, definitely it definitely helped to know that I had a company that um, had done this before with with lots of other successful uh, sports people around the world. So yeah, uh, I, I, it was it was de- that was definitely overwhelming, and I think it concerned my parents, but they didn't really know how to help me. I was going to say, what did your dad say when you showed him that big check? If I was your dad, I would have said, do you know how long it would take me to earn that much money and how much work I'd have to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't really anything we ever really talked about, just that they were worried um, about. The sharks start to circle, don't they? Yeah, When there's not, money, it's like not. blood in the water, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, honestly, and uh, it's only been recently in the last few years that I – so I've, I said I've been in this house for 22 years, so – 
Um, I bought the block of ground that I built the house on when I was 23, 22 actually, and then moved in when I was 23. And I had my parents were worried about um, how much money I was spending. Uh, my um, accountant at IMG was worried about how much I was spending. And <laughs> you're doing everything right, you know, because it, it was only it was only on my second. You know, I bought the land during this, my second full year on the LPGA and it never occurred to me, and this is probably good, but it never occurred to me that money would stop coming in. You know, like I was like, well, I made a million dollars last year and I've already made half a million dollars this year. Like I can afford it, but okay, what if, <laughs> what if you don't make a million dollars next year? A one injured um, wrist, a twisted ankle, yeah, a I slip just, in the shower. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, I never... I mean, everyone remembers what it's like to be 21, 22, 23. You, you don't think bad things are going to happen. Um, and you know everything, which is handy too because later you in do, life it's you much do, harder when you, you don't do know, know everything. everything <laughs> yeah. But as it turned out, I did know everything because I, I ended up staying here <laughs> were, the next 22 years and, yeah. and it has been a very good investment. So did you build that house? Are you house proud? Are you one who's – did you design it and do all of that sort of stuff? Are you into that kind of thing? Yeah, um, I am house proud, but uh, and I did design it. But again, being twenty two, twenty three, when I designed it, I was in a hurry um, for it to be built. And I vividly remember conversations with my architect. One of them was um, that your spare bedrooms aren't overly big and one of them doesn't have um a wardrobe a built-in wardrobe and i was like i don't care i don't want people to stay with me forever (laughs) even though you know because back then you don't think about how much storage you personally need for yourself Uh and then the other thing was you don't have a formal dining room and i i said i eat in front of the tv so (laughs) it's all right so since since then i have i have um had a built-in extension so that I do have a formal dining room. Well, not formal dining room because I'm not that, not that posh. But I do have, I do have, we do have more room to um, spread out when we're, if I do have people over for dinner. And we, and I don't eat in front of the TV very often. <laughs> so you offset that early bogey with a couple of birdies, and now everything's yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but it is funny what you think about back then, and and what actually makes more sense as an adult to live in a house. Well, it's interesting you say that. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, as a golfer, as a professional golfer, you kind of grow up in public, and you particularly, you started very young. I think about Lydia Coe as well, at the age of 14, winning a professional tournament. And that's a kind of a tough gig to grow up in the public eye. Michelle Wee is another one who you probably didn't have the scrutiny quite as much, certainly here in Australia, but maybe not globally, but you had plenty of it. Um, what's that like? Yeah. Because I feel like Kari Webb today is a very different Kari Webb personally, to Kari Webb 20-odd years ago? Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, I Which don't, would be weird if you weren't, by I the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That's a good thing. That would be odd. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't really, like, teenage-wise, I didn't grow up in the spotlight like the players that you mentioned. Um, for them, you know, adjusting to life it ha- was much harder. Um, and for me, I think when I – finished second to Laura Davies at the Australian Masters in my second professional event, there was definitely people within Australia and a lot of the um, female Australian pros that 
had been playing um, some of the professional events in the years prior to that that wouldn't have been shocked that I played well and finished second there. And I do know in hearing stories in, in later years that they went to Europe and said, wait till you see this girl, Carrie Webb, come. You know, she'll be out in a couple of years. But that, it wasn't like a a media spotlight. So it Weren't really Michelle wasn't. Wee. Until, Michelle Wee really. Yeah, it wasn't Michelle Wee. Yeah. Um, so much so that when I turned pro, um, I was borrowing money from my parents and my grandparents. Michelle Wee signed a $5 million deal with Nike and Sony and uh-huh. whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> she borrowed I definitely, <laughs> definitely didn't, didn't announce myself to the world. Um, but I think um, how quickly everything happened for me, um, winning the British Open and my rookie year in Europe and then um, winning my second event as a rookie on the LPGA the following year and then that whole year, I think it highlighted how shy a country girl I was. Um, and I I had learnt to be less shy just by even playing amateur golf uh, within Australia. But um, and, and you grow up watching people become famous and you think that would be something that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is it? And then when you're – when you're faced with it, it's not always exactly um, what you imagined. So it, it definitely took learning experience, I think, um, to understand everybody's role in 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 that. Um, I think through different experiences, it opened me up in, in certain ways with the media and clammed me up in other ways. Mm. You've spoken plenty of times before about your early relationship with the press, and it wasn't terrific, much of that the fault of the press and no doubt some of it the fault of yourself. We can be snide and nasty and cutting and unfair and demanding and petulant and childish and all of those sorts of things, which must be difficult. I, I seem to recall early on in America, I think we, you had the first million-dollar season maybe, 95? Yeah, that was my rookie year. Somebody yeah. nicknamed you Cash and Carry, which my understanding was <laughs> you didn't particularly like that or take kindly to that. Is that true? And if so, what was it about that that maybe bothered you? I don't remember being bothered. Well, I'm probably bothered by it because my name's not Carrie. Carrie. <laughs> so, um, and that just perpetuated people mispronouncing my name. And has that to, happened to, a lot to you? To this America? day. Still, still. Yeah. 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 It's still um, a lot. I can even introduce myself and say hi to my pro am people and say, hi, I'm Carrie. And they're like, oh, hey, Carrie, nice to meet you. And I'm like, did you just not hear how I said my name? You know, um, sorry, you know Tamara Beckett, don't you? Tamara Beckett. From here in Australia, Colton. yes, yeah. She, yeah. she told me once she was announced on a tee at a Symmetra tour event as Tamra Beckett, <laughs> and she stood there <laughs> not realizing it was her that was <laughs> was supposed to tee off, and then everyone started looking at her. Oh, that's me. Oh, sorry, Tamra yeah. Beckett. <laughs> there you go. Well, Laura, Laura Davies often gets Laurie Davis. Really? Yeah. Laura Davies. Laura Davies is a yeah, legend. Yeah, gets Laurie Laurie Davis. Wow. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Isn't it? So we. <laughs> So a lot of the times we'll be like, hey, Laurie, how's it going? <laughs> you know? But, yeah, so I don't know where we're at there. Oh, uh, just the, the – uh, uh, Yeah, cash so back with, idea, the, yeah. Yeah, back with the American media. I th- to be fair, I think the Australian media for the most part has been quite kind to me compared to how they can be to, to other um, top Australian sports people. You know, I really think it started with, with the American media – um, and more like each town's local journalists 
And I think my misunderstanding that Americans understood dry sarcasm. No. Um, <laughs> and in general, and in general, they don't. And I have a lot of close American friends, and most of them are sarcastic. Um, but in general, um, especially dry sarcasm, it just doesn't go over well. And especially from a 21 year old, I think I got off on the wrong foot there, um, possibly being asked a stupid question and giving a dry, sarcastic answer a few times that maybe I was just a, a little thought I was too good to 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 talk to the media, which wasn't the case at all. It was just my sense of humour. And then I didn't smile enough on the golf course and, you know, I wasn't the next Nancy Lopez. And so then Annika actually at the same time got, we were both got thrown into the same same pool of that we weren't we were leading the way on the golf course, but it wasn't what the LPJ needed. And um, those questions followed me every single week. So when you get asked the same question every week about the person that you are, it's not any fun. Um, so you don't enjoy that side of it. It's, there's sort of two medias, isn't there? Well, certainly I think here in Australia, I sit at the press conferences at the Australian Open and the Australian Women's Open, and there's kind of two medias. There's the golf media, the golf writers who do golf all year, and a couple of times a year we get to go to tournaments and we find it very exciting. We get to talk golf nerdy stuff. And then there's media media, the, the, the Daily Telegraph and the other tabloids around Australia who are looking for something that's got nothing to do with golf. They're looking for a headline because you're a celebrity. What's it like to be on that circuit? Because in America you must face this every single week. You're a profile player, so you're always on the media list on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. You've got to go and front up and face the ludicrous questions predominantly from – I'm not trying to exclude golf writers here. We ask our fair share of stupid, yeah. ridiculous questions. But I heard a question asked of Adam Scott once, which was just – he would have been within his rights to just say, look, sorry, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Can you leave, please, because that's nonsense. And you, right. He must get that every week. You must get that every week. What's that like? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Well – Again, like I said early on, I gave that dry, sarcastic comment, which then didn't set me up well for the next few years. Um, and so then I learnt not to be sarcastic. So I wasn't sarcastic at all. There. And so then I had no humour at all. <laughs> no personality. Conferences. Yeah. Kari's dull. Um, <laughs> she never says yeah. anything. Um, right. And then it, I, um, I played in this TV match, Battle, Battle of Bighorn, um, and it was David Duvall and I and Tiger Woods and Annika. And... We did the press conference afterwards and there were some stupid questions asked and the way Tiger and David answered those questions, and I'm sure that's how they handled stupid questions. I mean, it just it just rolled off their tongues. Like it, it was like a backhand slap to this person who asked the, the question and I, I was like, we I, we would never be able to answer a question like that without just being completely ripped apart in the media. And those, you know, that guy was almost apologetic for asking a stupid question. And I was like, wow, um, you know, I, I you know, it caught up with Tiger years later that he was like that. But at the time, if he thought it was a stupid question, he'd Amazing. say it was a stupid question and not answer it and take the next question. Yeah. What do you remember about that battle? I wanted to ask you about that specifically because nobody ever talks about it, but at the time yeah. that was a fascinating concept. I remember it being all a bit – it was under lights, I think, the last nine holes. Was that one of those? It, 
Yeah, last... Uh, four holes maybe or something? Four holes, five holes. Yeah. What do you remember about that? Yeah, so Tiger, Tiger had a deal with Disney um, and so he had to have one of these primetime matches each year and I think this was the third one that he had done and so they, they did... Um, so it was in 2001. Um, they did... It was, like I said, uh, Tiger and Annika and David and I. Um, it it wasn't a hard decision to say yes to because it was so monumental that the women had, that Annika and I were being asked to play in it. And prime time um, was great exposure for not just the two of us, but for the LPGA. But it was on the Monday of the British Open and in the first, first year, the first year that they made it a major. Wow. So... Um, so it was. It's a big call, I was isn't in it? The mid, it is. Well, I was in the. I was in the midst of four years of of winning, yeah, you know, ninety nine through two thousand. Yeah, through two thousand that two thousand two of winning six majors, and in two thousand one, I was asked to not prepare the way I would normally. And we were we were playing at Sunningdale, where I'd won in nineteen ninety seven. So it was. I couldn't say no to, but um, I. I wasn't as enthused as I should have been, I think, because of the situation that they'd put us in to play in it. They flew us over privately and we arrived um, Tuesday lunchtime, I guess. Um, but it's still not the best preparation for a, for a major. Um, but the event itself um, was, was, I mean, it was amazing to be a part of. Um, I'd, I'd met Tiger before, but I'd never met David before. And, um, and we were playing... Um, uh, foursomes. So um, I met David maybe two hours before we played, and <laughs> well, here we I are play having to play, <laughs> yeah, have, playing um, foursomes. But um, I think it could – well, they could have chosen another format, I think. I think foursomes was a difficult format. They also set the course up so difficult. So we, um, we took – I can't remember how long. I think it was like two and a half – to three hours to play the front nine with them making us stop for commercial breaks and and then how hard the course was playing. Um, and they were making us, if, if it wasn't Annika and my hole to tee off, they made us walk back to be standing on the tee with the guys, um, which all took time. And um, when we got to 10 tee, they came to us and they said, um, because it's taking you so long to play the first nine holes, you only have an hour to get to the lights before it's too dark. So they're like, so girls, you don't have to go back to the back tee when the guys are teeing off. We want you actually down the fairway already so that <laughs> you can hit quickly. Um, so then, so then the next five holes was a uh, huge, I think it was, I think we played five, four holes in under lights. So then the next five holes we had to play in an hour, which you know, we still had to stop for commercial breaks. So um, it still was difficult to get to. It was getting pretty dark by the time we got to 15. Um, but the whole experience, again, that, the other thing that for me that was a learning experience was how different the guys' crowds are to ours. Our, our fans are way more respectful of us as people. Um, the guys' fans, you know, there's lots of hecklers out there and I'd never experienced anything like it. And, and it was a TV match. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was it the Ryder Cup. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was hecklers out there. And I, uh, looking back on it, 
one, I wish it wasn't the Monday of the British Open. I think I would have thoroughly enjoyed it more because my mind was more mm-hmm. of where we were headed and and what was coming up for the week than it was playing that event. But, um, you know, I look at photos now and it's really cool. You know, it was the number one and two uh, male player and the number one and two female player in the world um, playing a TV match. And um, those things just don't get made anymore. And it was it was really fun to be a part of. They paired you with David Duval. There are some similarities, I guess, in some ways between the two of you, both known for the sunglasses. What was he like and how did you get on with him? Did you share really something with that that image? Did you? Yeah, no. Um, he's turned into a terrific commentator and an amazing analyst. He's a great. Today. He's a, he's a great analyst. Um, I really enjoy listening to him. Um, uh, I think what you see from him as an analyst is kind of the guy that um, that literally is the only time I've been around David Duval <laughs> is in right. in that um, in that. That's seven uh, and a half hours but, of foursomes, yeah. <laughs> foursomes golf. But he he just was such a nice guy. Like just, and he just won the British Open like maybe a month before. That was the one major he won. Um, so he, I, I felt like David was really down to earth and I think true to himself. I don't think he tried to be anyone other than himself. Um, and yeah, I mean. Again, it's hard in those situations. We're mic'd up to have any sort of serious conversations that we otherwise don't want the rest of the world to hear. So, um, but I, I enjoyed the the time that I spent with him, and I I have I really wish his career had have continued on because he was a great player, and I love watching him play. Um, but as an analyst, I love listening to his insights. Terrific, isn't he? It, it reminds yeah. me. Famously, you mentioned he'd just won the Open not long before. He probably is the poster child for this notion of well, – this is a saying I heard a few weeks ago, which I'd not heard before. You may have. It's, it's better to have travelled well than have landed. And he kind of landed when he won that Open. And it was all in terms of golf and his playing career downhill from there. And he famously sort of said that you know, on the plane on the way back, it's when Donnie well, is this it? Does that make any sense to right. you? You've won seven majors. You've landed a bunch of times. What's the difference? What, yeah. Do you understand what he's saying there? Is there? I think it was maybe the way I understood that was that he thought it would be more life-changing than it was mm-hmm. um, and more like he, how he would feel once he'd done it. Because mm-hmm. you can't know, can you? You can't practice that. You yeah. don't know until it happens. I will never know what it's yeah. like to win a major. You know what it's like to win a major. Does it make any sense to you? Is it life-changing? Um, for me, it was it was another feather in my cap when it, it – well, the first one is always then you don't have to answer the question, when, it, when are you going to win a major? Um, so that's the relief of that one. Um, I don't think they're as life-changing as me making my first big check or, or, or actually even me winning the, the first event that I won on the LPGA as an LPGA member was that second event of my rookie year. That was life-changing because I knew I had a tour card for three years. At the time, it, winning gave you a three-year exemption. Well, that's life-changing because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm over here for three years at least. So buy a, buy a block of land um, and build a house now. Great big yeah. one that costs more than my accountant says I should spend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would say that 
looking back, I definitely enjoyed winning the majors that I won and I celebrated mm-hmm. that, but I didn't enjoy them as much as I would now if I reeled off six majors. Um, I think when you're young and you're ambitious and goal oriented, it was like, all right, tick, you know, I, I checked that box and yeah. let's, what's the next thing? You know, you wake up Monday and you're like, all right, well, we've got this tournament now. So you, you move on. And, and as much as that sounds bad, it's actually what has to happen mentally. I think to, to play as consistently well as I did for such a long period of time is that you didn't one, you never, you never got too high on your horse because you, you put yourself back down to the ground the next day and started working for the next event and the next win. And, um, and you know, you didn't get complacent, but then I don't think you, I ever understood how great I played Mm -hmm. and how consistently well I played during that time and never appreciated as much as I should have. If you did, maybe you wouldn't, have done what we always say, don't we? Exactly. If Mickelson was just a bit more conservative, he'd have won a lot more. Actually, he might have won a whole lot yeah. less and just been a well, top top ten finisher. Quite. He might really. have won. <laughs> he might have won five US Open. He might. <laughs> he might. He's not done yet. He'll tell you that he's not done yet. Don't you write him off? He's uh, he's got one left in him. Is what actually happens when you win a major is that others change the way they treat you. You don't change, but the way people treat yeah. you does. I remember Jeff Ogilvy told me that he said. The day after he won the 20, 20, 2006 US Open, suddenly he knew everything about everything, apparently. His opinions right. really mattered. It didn't matter on the Thursday, but on the Sunday, everything he said was gospel because he'd won a major net right. and others treated yeah, him differently. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think probably the guys probably experience that more. I don't I don't know if – and someone like Jeff, even though all, all of Australia knew who, who he was and we were cheering for him that day, he was – he sort of snuck up and won it mm-hmm. and he wasn't super well known to the, especially US Open here is always on the Sunday of Father's Day. So there's a lot of people that don't watch golf that watch golf that day because they're with their fathers and, and so they would have not, most of those people didn't know who Jeff was. So um, that's where for him, then he becomes more well known. I, I don't think it has the same impact for us, but it in Smaller terms, I guess it does. Um, it's funny. I, you know what I find so refreshing about a lot of the younger players now is that they're not afraid to say what their opinions are, mm-hmm. especially, you know, because they have their own platform and they with social media and they can control they can control their message. You know, the only way I could control my message is if I set an interviewer up to ask me the questions so I could answer them the way I wanted to and then you still had to trust that they would write Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you said. I, I, it's refreshing to see um, the younger players have more of a voice and, and not really care what the haters say mm-hmm. back to them, but they, but they stand by what they, what they feel. Let's, let's, let's make a starting point. The problem f- for women's golf is that men, it seems, just don't respect it enough, and it shows in every way, in money. I think your career earnings are – 20 million something on the LPGA that puts you second on the career list. Yeah. You'd be 80th on the men's tour. I was going to say Kevin, I wouldn't be Kevin Streelman. 50, but yeah. No, 80th alongside yeah. Kevin Streelman. I think there are yeah. 12 women so far who've made, you know, who made a million dollars in t- or more in 2019. It's like 
down in the hundreds for the man making a million dollars. I was going to say, you almost have to make a million to keep your card. To keep your card, that's exactly right. And so that's really just a scoreboard. But what does it say about – I saw you retweeted a fantastic piece by Mike Wan this morning talking about sponsorship and the future of sponsorship and women's sports. It's a very vexed and complicated issue, isn't it? But does it start from this basic point that it's the respect that's lacking and all the other things are symptoms of that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think true, there's there's definitely a um, a true sports fan out there that will watch men's, women's, doesn't matter. But I think what's missed is that since sport has been around and, and that it has um, donned the back pages of newspapers, so whatever, a couple, 100, 150 years, it was only men that socially were allowed to play sport. So it wasn't until recently, really, when you think about the U.S. Open, the U.S. Women's Open this year, if we play it, is the 75th running of it. So until recently, really, in the history of the game of golf, women weren't even on a stage. Um, It's the 70th year of the LPGA. Um, and we're the longest-running women's professional sporting organisation, standalone um, sporting organisation. In all sport, you know, you look at just in Australia, you look at cricket, you look at uh, AFL, rugby league. Women, I know growing up, I, I wanted to play cricket with the boys, but girls don't play cricket. So the only time I played cricket was in the schoolyard. I didn't play formal cricket and then I ended up playing indoor cricket because girls were allowed to play cricket you know so it's hard if we if we roll the clock back 200 years and at the same time that men were playing sport women were playing sport and it was written about them we'd probably be we'd be built up but by the time women were allowed to really play any of these sports the men already dominated the page and er- everyone knew what standard that sport should be played at because that's what we've been watching for all of these years. And then women entering, you look at the women's AFL, them entering and all the, the criticism of, of that. Well, they haven't had the funding and, and, and the years and years of history to, to get to be of any level that, you know, any of these critics, um, would want them to be playing it. Um, AFL's not taking that seriously either, is it? Let's be honest. Yeah, I thought they were. It's not as as much as I I thought from the beginning. I I really think Cricket Australia, in my opinion, has done pretty well. I I mean, I'm sure the Aussie girls would want them to, to commit more, but I'm a bit of a cricket tragic and, you know, in the last three or four years, the standard of cricket the women play has gotten better and better every year. And that's just goes to show that when you invest in it and they can, and they can play cricket as their profession and they don't have to work a side job, how much better the standard gets. And that's the luxury men have had, Mm. (laughs) you know, over a (laughs) hundred years, you know, so that's why it's hard to, to compare men's and women's and, and, what I loved about that article that Mike Wan wrote was that 7% of um, 
sponsorship, sporting sponsorship dollars, 7% get spent on women's sports. But where Mike has positioned the LPGA and where I, I was on the board for four years um, when Mike first um, came to the LPGA and and he dug us out of a deep hole then, um, is just the way he think, thinks about things and where he's positioning our sponsors now and, and we have some huge corporate partners now, you know, um, you know, we have CME and KPMG and he's selling to sponsors. What is your business strategy? Is it, is it to empower? You say you claim that it's to empower women, but you spend Nothing. $20 million a year on men's sports and $0 on women's sports. So it's a really great piece. And, and I think that's, that's where companies are going to get it. They're going to, not only do they want the corporate hospitality for their customer and and then it's always going to be a little bit about TV ratings but but also I think how it looks as as their company are we living up to what we say we are and because the two interesting stats in that piece weren't they were the seven percent that companies actually spend and the 95 percent who claim that equality is one of their top three. <laughs> Agenda items. Right. Something about right. those two figures is not making sense. There's a, there's a disconnect yeah. there that yeah. you can only find from looking within. Uh, they, right. they those people they need to look within, don't they? It's one thing to yes. talk the talk, but walking the walk is right. somewhat different. That T twenty final that you mentioned going to the women's T twenty final, the MC. I think it was the best attended sporting event this year. Is that right? Or for, for some, it was, it was an amazing. Yeah, well, they were trying to set a world record actually. Yeah. Um, for uh, attendance to a women's um, sporting event, um, and they and I it, without COVID, you know that was already on the on the radar in Australia. If, I think without COVID, they would have broken that record. There's sort of some momentum building there. What's I don't know. I've probably asked the question. What's the answer, Carrie? What do you do? It, and and how do you feel about it? Is it is your outlook bleak, optimistic? Is it just tiresome? Are you tired of talking about it, being asked about it? I know that you're one who's publicly said that you want to make it better for the women who follow you than what it has been yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you're bashing your head against a brick wall sometimes? Because you know that when this podcast comes out, people will go on Twitter and say, well, women's golf just isn't as interesting to watch. It's not as marketable. It's just a simple economic argument. What's wrong with you? Why can't you get it? Yeah. I, I don't understand how you can say that women's golf isn't as interesting to watch. I mean, we're we're still a we don't hit our five iron as far as we as the men hit it, but we can still hit a five iron as close to the pin as the men do. Um, I think it's the men hit under- five irons anymore. Yeah, well, in the in the par fives, <laughs> yeah, that's right. in the par fives, <laughs> some of the longer ones, um, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm 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 the most optimistic that I've been. Um, to be honest, I, I think for the longest time. Any of those frustrations, you just always like, oh well, that's golf, or that's just the way it is. I don't think you saw that much would change. But then I saw that when I approached Golf Australia um, about, you know, I just felt that there was a lack of depth. Of I mean, we've we've had the Hannah Greens and the Minji Lees and the Suos come out in the last few years, but. It's not like a huge depth behind it, which means that there isn't a lot of girls playing to to find 
you know, those special players that, that go on to turn pro and, and do well overseas. Because they're here, aren't they? They're here. We're just we're missing them somehow. They're, yeah. going, they're doing well, something we're not else. Reta- yeah, yeah, we're not retaining them in the game. They might start, but, but for many reasons. Um, they don't continue to play or they don't play because their parents don't play and their parents have a perception of what golf is. And But I feel like Golf Australia has taken the ball by the horns and they're legitimately putting an effort into uh, growing the, the game for women and girls um, and, and just in general, obviously, um, just trying to make it more inclusive. And I think there's a concerted effort from them. I know the RNA has put out a charter and, and I think there's movement around the world for it. So I'm, I'm the most optimistic that I've ever been. And I, and the fact that there's just so many, just for women's sport in general, not just my sport. Like obviously I want my sport to um, flourish, but I just want to see women's sport on the stage that it deserves and, and watching the Australian or just women's cricket on the stage that it was for the women's T20 world cup, um, 85, 86,000 people, whatever it was like, I would have loved to have just been down on the field to to feel what that was like. I mean, I I was just so excited to be there to to see that that many people um, turned up to watch women's sport. You know, so I think there's things like that that you know make make me truly optimistic that women's sport will slowly over the these next years and decades get to a point where there is more respect and there is a larger fan base. Your own role in that, I'm not sure if you've even thought about it, is obviously going to important, be important. This saying, you, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, you've shown it, haven't you? Seven majors and a dominant player on the LPGA on the world stage, the very best player in the world. So every Australian girl growing up can look up and say, well, if Kari did it and she's from here, there's no reason I can't do it. And in fact... I wanted to ask you about this specifically. A couple of years ago at the Australian Open, Justin Falcon is the young guy's name who put that video together that made you cry if you ever want to hunt him <laughs> down. And okay. That was really quite touching, wasn't it? And I wonder whether you thought about your place in the game. I imagine when you're pursuing what you were pursuing as a player, wanting to be the best you can be and win everything that you tee up in, these issues I can't imagine are part of your thinking. But now yeah. at this stage of your career looking back, an important role to play now isn't there for Kari Webb maybe more important in some yeah. ways yeah definitely I think um I, I describe it as um for many years I I took what I could from the game mm-hmm. um and I got a lot back from the game and now I feel like it's my time to give back to the game and the Kari Webb series was was the start of that but I feel like there's there's more work to be done and I can be involved in other ways and not just not just at the elite level um, of the game. I would love to see more girls and more women play the game of golf and feel comfortable joining golf clubs and, and, and that being the fabric of their families and, and their communities is, is the golf club. And even the air golf club, I think, used to be the fabric of the community a lot more than it is now. I think it struggles just like a lot of country clubs do of getting people to be members and to go out and, and to be a part of the club. So there is there is an, a next step for me, I guess, in golf, and that is giving back to the game that has given me so much. That realisation, I'm imagining there might have even been a moment when you 
realised that and that there was this role for you. Were you surprised by that? Uh, it feels like you welcome it. I asked you at the Vic Open about what's the more important part of your career, the previous or what you're doing now, and you said very much now this is much more important because it's bigger than just you. But yeah. Did you, did you realise that and, and, and were you surprised that – because you kind of – you kind of have the responsibility, don't you? You don't have to do it, but you kind of have yeah. the responsibility, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't. I feel that I do have a responsibility. I, I don't. I wouldn't put that on anybody else. No. Anybody, like I wouldn't say that that's everybody's responsibility to give back to the game or give back to their communities or, or whatever. I think it's it's something that's personal, but I think um, for me. When I started the Curry Web Series, it, it was something I wanted to give back. And working with Golf Australia, you know, we came up with the concept and even deciding what tournament it was that the girls were coming over to, you know, and I threw out the US Open. And this was, and you know, the first year they came over was in 2008, but we've been talking about it for a while. And and it was in 2007, said, um, let's make it the U.S. Open. And people around me are, were like, are you sure you want them to be at the U.S. Open? And I'm like, no, I'm not sure that I want them to be at the U.S. Open. It's probably not the best for me, but it's the best experience for them. It's That's, you know, one of the biggest events we play. Um, it's an event I want them to aspire to play in. I didn't want it to be just some random tournament that didn't have the atmosphere that a US Open does. So as it turned out, I mean, as much as I know the girls absolutely love it, it did more for me, I think, than possibly it did for them. And I think I think it always feels better to give than to receive. And, and I've really loved, um, since 2008, having the girls over. It's always been a highlight of my year. Yeah, and, of course, the... We all saw what happened at the PGA last year when Hannah won, and there you yeah. were, like the nervous parent watching the, yeah. the player over that, <laughs> that last I try part. not to think of it as a parent. But. No, no, I get that. I get that. But they're so young, Kari. We can't avoid it uh, any longer. The truth well, is people you know, are getting funny. younger. I woke, up, I woke up the next day, and and because I got – it was like you, you were the parent, and I was like, I don't like when people are saying that. And then I was like – well, how, when my mum was 44, how old was I? And I was 22, which is how old Hannah was when she won. So it's like, it's like oh, that God. first moment you catch yourself saying something that your parents would have said to you and you hear yourself and you go, hang on a minute, this is not right. I've become, I've yeah. become my parents. What a wonderful moment that was and what a wonderful ambassador oh, she is for the game. She, she is very naturally all the things I guess you probably weren't as a youngster. Isn't she? she is just naturally wired to, to give. There's, um, to say she's like Arnold Palmer would be overstating it, but there's elements of that natural connection she makes with people, isn't there? She's yeah. quite special, Hannah. She is. Um, she she definitely gets it. For someone as young as she is, she definitely gets it um, a lot quicker than, well, definitely a lot quicker than I than I came to to the understanding of it. And and I think people get to those points at various stages in their life, but she already has an understanding of that, which which I think is. It's marvelous that you know, even through this ISO, she's out playing with 
all the young juniors. And uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you'd been at Air Golf Club and there was a major winner just lob up every week and you could go and tee up with them and she'd talk yeah. to you and that's extraordinary yeah. stuff. She, there's a maturity yeah. about that. Uh, she's one yeah, of my favourite people, yeah. Hannah Grimm. We don't yeah, play favourites, Jernos, but she's one of my favourites. <laughs> yeah, she's couple a of quick question. We're going to talk about some golf nerdy stuff because we barely talked about golf in all of this time and that's my fault. I take full responsibility. I hope you're enjoying our chat with Kari, and if you are, then you might also like to delve into the Thing About Golf archives. We've had some terrific guests over the year or so that the podcast has been going, everybody from Peter Lonard and Pete Senior to Meg McLaren and Bob and Kathy Shearer. Just head to golfaustralia.com.au and click the podcast tab, or if you're one of the cool kids, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any on one of the other myriad apps that are available on the market. If you do that, we'll turn up in your playlist whenever we release a new episode and you won't have to do a thing. Oh, and it's free, so you're not going to find a better deal than that this week. Now, back to Kari. One of my favourite photos I've ever seen in golf was a blurry image of you doing the Toyota five-star jump as Adam Scott's (laughs) putt went in the hole in the playoff at the Masters in 2013. What do you remember about that? Uh... And when you won majors and whatnot, do you think there's a similar – it's kind of back to that other thing. Do you think Australia's male golfers feel the same way? And when Hannah won last year, do you think that's a, a, a shot of enthusiasm and injection for our guys as well? Um, okay. So the first part of your question about Adam winning um, the Masters, I, I've suffered through all the different um, <laughs> Aussies that have had a, a chance to win the Masters since the very first one I remember watching was the 86 Masters when oh, God. Um, <laughs> Jack Nicholas made the comeback to beat um, Greg. And then, of course, the next year, 87. So I, I've suffered through them all. And I was actually at my very first Masters to watch in 96. Oh um, God, Carrie! <laughs> and I, I got I got to the golf course early on Sunday morning, put my chair on eighteen because oh, I was no. going to watch Greg Norman get his green jacket. So I, I've I've suffered through many many an Aussie that had a chance to win the, Are you the, the Masters. Is it your fault? Well, actually, <laughs> it was a couple of years before that. I can't can't remember. It was the year that um, Charles Swartzel won. And oh God, um, you weren't I think there for Jason that too. Day, <laughs> No, I wasn't, but Jason Day, Adam Scott, and I think Jack, Jeff Ogilvy, were Jeff they, Ogilvy? all three of them are up there, yeah. right? With yeah. like less than nine holes to go. And I'm like, yeah. there is no way an Aussie's not going to win today. <laughs> like that, I may, I said that out aloud. And yeah, it didn't happen. So um, I felt like I jinxed that by saying that out aloud. But, um, you know, obviously the next, the next chance was um, Adam winning and, um, I just, I don't know. I felt like I won a golf tournament when he won. I was so excited for him. Uh, obviously, he'd let one slip at the British Open the year before, so I was super, super excited for him. And and just how he celebrated by yelling out, come on, Aussie. Like, I think he, he brought the whole country in on the win, which is cool. His reaction there on 18 when he won, the, when he held the putt on 18, we know that he won the playoff after that. A little bit similar in some ways to your reaction at the 2006, what's now the ANA, what was the Kraft Nabisco. It was very yeah. un-Adam Scott. Mm, your reaction yeah. to that 2006 Kraft Nabisco was very un-Kari Webb, and you've spoken about that many times, yeah. what an important, and that was maybe a life-changing thing in some yeah. ways. It's funny to think, isn't it, that 
professionals at that level who've been at the game for that long, devoted their whole lives to it, can, in a way you kind of, can be kind of surprised by what it means and what, what it does. That's a that's funny, isn't it? You know, I just found that interesting. If every day you toil constantly for this achievement and you can be surprised yeah. by your own reaction when it comes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that's why I took it so personally when I was criticised for not smiling or lack of smiling on the golf course was because that was just my natural mm-hmm. – like, I smiled when I won, um, but it, I was – toiling away and trying to keep my composure and that was just my natural reaction when i held that shot in 2006 that was my natural reaction what that wasn't oh my god i'm going to jump into my caddy's arms and and it's scripted it, that that is just how i felt at that that moment in time and i literally thought i'd hold that to win the tournament so that's why I, that's why <laughs> i celebrated the way i did yeah <laughs> Uh, oops, indeed. You took the game very seriously, though, Kari. A hard practicer. Uh, you told yeah. Richard Kaufman on the Round podcast last year that you felt like you had to constantly work. That was all part of that. Yes, we've won this one, but there's more work to be done and and to keep going. Not everybody's wired that way, um, mm-hmm. but for you, well, now is obviously different. I'm, I'm guessing you don't grind as hard at the game now as you used to what's your relationship with golf like you're playing obviously a lot less tournament golf i'm guessing you're not grinding to become the best player in the world again what's your relationship do you play socially do you practice Um, enjoy practice yeah i'm i'm actually through this iso it's been it's been weird so palm beach county closed their courses for about five weeks and i'd i'd been playing a little bit up before that but not a lot. And when it closed the first week or so, I was like, oh, you know, it's closed. And then about two weeks into it being closed, I'm like, should I be worried? Like, you know, like, should I feel like I need to practice a little bit? Because I, I really hadn't decided how many tournaments I was going to play this year. So it wasn't like I had anything upcoming to practice, but it, it, it's been my life for so long to, to worry about golf and where the state of my game is that, I thought that I should worry about it. So I ordered a, a golf net that I thought I'd be able to construct and put in my garage and and leave up and still pull the car mm. in. Um, but it was too big and too hard to get up and down. So I just put it back in the box and I'm like, I'm done. So <laughs> You get I, a lot of money I, for that. They're very hard to get at the moment. So you could probably yeah, sell well, that for more I've than you paid for. Anyone wants one. Still in the box. <laughs> it hasn't had a ball hit into it. So – so then I just waited it out and yeah, it wasn't you miss it wasn't it? that bad. You know, I don't miss I mean, I really I'm <laughs> when I go back to playing, I miss being able to hit it really good and, and solid. Uh, it's taken taken a bit since since um we've opened back up, but I did and I didn't. You know, because I've been playing part time for a couple of years, I have gone longer periods where there hasn't been lots of you know, where I have a schedule each day and, you know, I'm going to practice and then I'm going to work out and all of that stuff, like a, a routine. That's what I was looking for. Um, so it, was, it wasn't a huge adjustment because I've, I've learned that I don't have to be routine, but there was I, – I did feel like there was something missing, but I still haven't gone out a whole lot, again, because now I've got to get to this new normal with the game for me is um, when I go out and hit balls and what am I hitting balls for? It's not like I'm working towards something because I'm 
it's still unknown when I'm going to play. So, so there's no joy in just the hitting play. for you? That, I know I do. I, I enjoy going out. I, when I'm not out there, I have found that I don't miss it. But once I get out there, I'm like, wow, I miss being out here. And I, just being at a golf course and the smells and the feeling of being out there. And and I I do enjoy hitting balls, but after 45 minutes, I'm like, I look at my watch and I'm like, I've only been here 45 <laughs> minutes. You know, like I'd hit balls for hours and 45 minutes just dragged. So, um, yeah, I'm just in a different different place. And I, and I want to be – and I do enjoy um, playing social golf, but I don't enjoy – playing awful so i think i've got to get to a place where golf is my hobby and not my uh-huh. job that's Can that that, that's what i i hope so that's what i want that's what i would like to happen that it's my it's now my hobby and something i l- like to do because i like to do it not because it's my job it up and down let's move to the second part of your career and i'll try to get through this a little bit quicker sorry it's been dragging on a bit golf course design so you've partnered with ross Perrett. How did that come about and what's your interest there? Have you always been interested? I feel like a lot of professionals, especially the best players in the game, course designers have no interest. It's just a series of shots that need to be conquered and executed when you play and that maybe later on comes, why is this shot more interesting? Why do I like that golf course? Why do I play there? Has that been how it's been for you or have you been one like Jeff Ogilvie and Mike Clayton for whom the golf course has always been a critical ingredient in the enjoyment of the game? No, I'm, I'm more, you know, it has evolved. I, I've had the opportunity to be around course design since the late 90s, early 2000s, but I'm definitely someone that liked, didn't, I liked a course but couldn't explain why I liked it. And, then was all, and it was always about how you played the hole um, rather than the aesthetics that make that hole so great, and that's the stuff. I think I've evolved too. But even going back to uh, 99, early 2000s, I was um, uh, David Mariner owned Laguna Keys up in the Wet Sundays and I was uh, designing the second course. There was a David Graham course there that they played the Australian Skins game at a couple of years. Uh, I think they played two Australian Skins games there. And I was, um, because I grew up about, three hours, two and a half hours north of there. Um, he thought it would be great that the second course was the Curry Webb course. So um, I was with IMG still at the time. So I, I was involved with that project from walking it when it was still a rainforest to seeing the corridors cut to seeing it fully shaped and ready to be grassed. And, and unfortunately, the, ma- the money ran dry and um, – now it's now it's back to being a, a rainforest. So it's a tragedy, Laguna Key. It is a tragedy. It really um, is. But um, yeah, so you know, I've had those opportunities. Um, I've been, um, you know, before partnering with Ross. So um, I've been re- redesigning Townsville Golf Club with uh, Bob Harrison for well, I mean, we broke ground five years ago, but the just the whole process has probably been going on for about ten years. Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, they've had a lot of bad luck up there, but um, hopefully that we'll see that to to fru- fruition. Good part and of the then Olympic wo- bid, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, with so Thompson then and Perry. How I got involved with with Ross was Ross and Peter Thompson asked me to be a part of their bid for the the Rio Olympic course. Um, so I think that was going back to around um, 2010. 
and uh, instantly, well, I mean, we all know how great a guy um, Peter Thompson was, and um, huge fan of yours yeah, always too. Yeah, great supporter and, of yours over I, the years, and, and me of him, and and uh, I, you know, I go in there just really being honoured to have been asked to be a part of the team. And the first day there, Peter's asking me to draw. And, you know, I want to know your thoughts. Like, show me show me what you think. And there was just a very mutual respect between Ross, Peter and I in that that we were truly a team. They weren't just adding my name to the team to, to have a female presence. Like, I was a part of the team. And um, and then after that, we... We bid on um, Royal Pines and, and a couple of other jobs. So I, I'd, I'd been involved with them for many years. And then, uh, you know, Peter stepped away from, from the business and it was just Ross for a couple of years. And we verbally agreed to put in a bid for um, Indrapilly Golf Course in twenty beginning of 2018. And and in the end, they, you know, they put it out for, for a bid and, and we, we ended up winning the job. So um, after the many other tries that we had to, to work together. We, we won that job and we decided to, to form, to form our own company. And, um, yeah, we're trying to get started at Indrapilly. I think it's, it's going to be um, a great project once we can get in, dig, dig some dirt. You might, you might've picked the only profession harder than golf to have any success in, <laughs> in golf course yeah. design. That's, there's yeah. not a lot of it. There's an awful lot of people who want to do it, and there's a lot of very good yeah. people uh, out there. So that, uh, congratulations for getting a gig. That's the, that's the first and most important thing. What's your sort of role there, and how do, you, how do you approach it? I would imagine you've got lots of ideas. All golfers do, don't they? Every single one of us has played 100 yeah. holes and said, oh, we don't know what they were thinking here. That's ridiculous, usually because we've hit a bad shot. Yeah, right. But how's that learning process for you? Because I, I would imagine once you start to understand a bit of what course designers do, it's a lot more involved than we think, isn't it? And whilst you might stand there and go, well, Ross, I think we should put this there and then you can hit that shot and he can say, well, that's never going to drain, Kari. This will just be a yeah. swamp the whole time if we do that. There's so much more to it, isn't there, than just what you might like to have in your head? Yeah, definitely. So so much more. Um, and, I, and for me, uh, obviously – the actual construction part of it is what I'm learning about. And that's the part I'm just seeing another side to the game that has been my life. So I've, I've really taken the ball by the horns and I, you know, I'm trying to read as much as I can and learn as much as I can. Um, Cause I don't want to just be at a meeting. I want to be a part of the meeting. So it's the knock on tour pros, isn't it? it tour pros put their name to golf courses and they have nothing to do and they turn up on opening day and they cut the ribbon and they have no idea how it actually came to be. And it's probably true sometimes, but yeah. you don't want to be that, um, do you? No, I don't want to be that person. And, and uh, Purely because I, I like, well, I don't want to stick my name on something and, and not have been a part of it, but I also, I, I love learning. And like I said, I've had all these opportunities well, not a lot, but a few opportunities to see a, a course built from start to finish and haven't got to the finish line. So I'm eager to, to have a few projects that we can, you know, stick our teeth into and, and, and really make make a mark and make um, what is what a, is a Parrot Web golf course. It's a big deal, isn't it? It's a huge canvas to paint a picture on, the earth. You can see them from aeroplanes, golf courses. <laughs> There's a fair yeah, bit of pressure to get it, it right. What have been your favourite courses over there, and what are your influences? You said you've been doing a lot of reading. What have you What have you been reading, and what do you take from? There's there's oodles of books about the subject. There is. 
obviously growing up in Australia, I think I have an an affection for the sandbout courses and, 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 you know, I feel like Australian courses in general just have a certain look about them. Um, and I, I feel like I always compare courses everywhere else in the world to, to that. But I also have loved playing Lynx golf. I love the creativity of that. And then, but then even over here, the great golf courses, even though it's wall to wall grass and, and it's a little one dimensional with, you know, with rough, and there's not as much creativity around the greens. There's still an architecture over here that's uniquely American too, and that I that I love. Um, so, and as far as reading, um, I've read a few books. I read The Spirit of St Andrews that Alistair Mackenzie wrote, but it's more. Um, I'm reading about different grasses and. <laughs> the tedious and, stuff, the boring yeah, stuff. Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> the great thing is, you know, social media, you can follow different uh, outlets that you can read about different articles and what people are doing and how they overcome certain problems at um, certain jobs and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's plenty of reading still to do. And, and you know, some of it can be quite tedious. So, you know, I do it for a certain amount of time and then I go and read something that's a little lighter and not, not, a bit more fun. Not as brain taxing. Practicing putting versus practicing flop shots. You know, yeah. One's loads of yeah. fun and the other one is just kind of uh, getting right. the mechanics right. Where have been your favourite places to play over time? What are your, if I said to you, you know, what are your five top memories of your golf career? Do any come immediately to mind? Are they the obvious ones we would think of? Are they major wins or big moments or the. One of the eight times you won at Royal Pines, which we haven't even mentioned yet, which is an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. Um, well, I would say the top memory we've spoken about was the 2006 um, Craft Nabisco where I hold, hold the shot. I mean, just the my reaction to that shot. And, and if I think about it, I, I, I can – feel the emotions instantly i can i can break you said that last back. year too when you spoke to richard cabin you, you think about it you feel and that's still the case to this yeah. day wow. yes definitely so i i wouldn't say it's the best best shot of my career or or the most important moment of my career but it was it was definitely a, you know the most uh, impactful shot mm-hmm. of my career and so that i guess that gets number one but Winning my first Australian Masters at at home, that was my first Australian win. All of all of the times that I've won Australia have been very special, but the first one there was sort of again like winning your first major, not having to answer the question when are you going to win at home. Um, and I been a pro for two years. When are you going to win? <laughs> yeah, I let it slip the year before, so I think it was it was nice that the very next year I came back and won it. So. But, yeah, that definitely started a love affair that I've had with Royal Pines. And, and I wouldn't say that Royal Pines is uh, – and and I haven't played it since it's been redesigned, but it wasn't the, the best golf course in the world. But early the on – Moments there, though, in Australian yeah. history, don't you? Jane Craft yeah, are definitely. winning there. And, and honestly, probably, probably one of the best-conditioned um, Bermuda golf courses – I've ever played on anywhere in the world. The greens were probably the purest Bermuda greens I'd, I've played on. And I think just I had a lot of family and friends there. Obviously, it's a Queensland event. And once I started winning there, I think I, you know, I just had this comfort um, that no matter where I was going into the weekend, I knew I had a chance to win. 
It was a big event too, though, Carrie. It was a it was a real fixture on the Australian sporting calendar. Is my recollection. Yeah, would outrate the yeah. men's cricket quite often. Much of yeah. that probably due to you, and I think that story grew over time. The more times you won it, the more interesting it became the following year to see right. if you could win it again, and that builds on itself, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. there was something special yeah. about that tournament, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. And, I, and you know, early, early on, well, when I first um, – first couple of times, I think the first three times I won it was an LPGA event. So mm-hmm. we had the best players from the US coming over, and, and that was the first sort of co-sanctioned event of its – Mm-hmm. of its kind yeah. in Australia. I don't think the men had really done that yet. They hadn't co-sanctioned with Europe yet. So it was a way of guaranteeing more than just the appearance, the guys that would come to Australia on appearance money. You know, you were getting a, a full world-class field. Yeah. And I think that's why it got such the attention it did. Yeah. Five Australian women's opens. And I know that certainly for the men, they say right behind the majors for, the, for Australian men is the Australian Open. I imagine it's the same for you. Although Hannah Green told me, before she won the PGA, that the Australian Women's Open was the most important tournament to her, even above the majors. She might not say that now that she's won <laughs> one of the majors. Where does it rank for you? And those those memories must be truly special because your own National Open is. Yeah, d- definitely. Like I would agree, outside of the majors, uh, the Australian Open, and and I guess because that's been more of a, a constant than now the Australian Masters. At the time, the Australian Masters was – even when the Australian Open started, I think the Australian Masters was the premier event because because it was an LPGA event um, and the field was stronger. But for me, I think what I'm proud of too is is the venues that I have won those five at. So Yarra Yarra a couple of times, but then Royal Sydney, Kingston Heath and Vic Golf Club. I've won on some great tracks. Proper golf courses that demand yeah. proper golf, don't they? They're yeah. proper examinations yeah. of every facet of the game, including the mental aspects. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's why uh, – and, and the fact that the Australian Masters was played on the same golf course. So winning five Australian Opens is probably the equivalent of, of – or even better than eight Australian Masters purely because they won on different golf courses. Your Twitter handle is AO. Where does that fit in the achievements of Kari Webb, that AO? Yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah, the, well, probably the most special achievement. You know, it's not something that you can set out to achieve or, or, or work hard to achieve. It's something that someone else has to nominate you for and they feel that you're deserving of. So, yeah, it's very, very special. And that's why I proudly have that on my my Twitter handle. As I would, (laughs) as anybody would, as you would, as you should. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal achievement. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is. When when I was at the ceremony um, a couple of years ago, I was sitting, most of the uh, um, people getting awards that day um, were military people. Some of the people, they couldn't even say their name because of the the, uh, high risk nature of the work they'd done in the military um, by saying their name could could threaten their safety and their family safety and, and then they say Kari Webb for services to golf <laughs> you know like I'm like that's not even close close to what everyone else in the room has done so um, yeah uh, that's a kick right in the perspective butt isn't it <laughs> in perspective, yeah. it's like, well I didn't three putt a couple of times which was nice yeah but, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
it's uh, yeah, so quite but it is a very on, special honor. Yeah, very hum- definitely very humbling. Mm. Yeah. You said once in an interview, I'm sure that I read that the most nervous you've ever been was giving your speech at the World Golf Hall of Fame induction, which is available on your website. People can go and read. Is that true? Was that the most nervous you'd been? And why do you think you must have given a million speeches by 2005? Um, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind speaking in public, but not prepared speeches. I I can do a great Q and A. I'm fine with doing that, but um, prepared speeches because it's prepared. You know, people expect that it's going to be good <laughs> or decent. Yeah. Um, and also, also, I feel like. And and the World Golf Hall of Fame has changed their their criteria now. So now you have to be forty five um, or retired for five years um, to be inducted. So that's better, isn't it? Does that make more sense? Yeah, I think I think it does because uh, being thirty years old and getting inducted just short of my thirty first birthday, I definitely you know I was still in the thick of it. So mm. even though I. I truly enjoyed both my World Golf Hall of Fame and LPGA Hall of Fame inductions. I just still didn't have the perspective that I that I needed to. I'm not, I think that my speech was fine, um, but I was really nervous too because I'm a I am quite an emotional person, and um, I was worried I was I was going to cry. That LPGA Hall of Fame might be the most difficult club in the world to become a member of. The criteria yeah. is crazy. I think, was there 17 of you in there? Is that all? No, 20, 23. 23 or 24, yeah. Again, B yeah. Park was the last one in maybe in Yes. Yeah, she went in 20 – oh, was it – I think it was – no, she had to be on tour 10 years, so maybe 2018 yeah. was, okay. was her 10 years. Yeah. 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 What does that mean? I mean, is it too hard? People have criticised the LPGA of Hall of Fame and said, look, it's a bit silly – 70 years in existence, you've only got 23 people have actually managed to do yeah. it. But you can make a case um, both ways, very, can't you? It's You can. Arguably is the hardest sporting Hall of Fame in the world to get into. Mm. So I'm very proud to be a member of that, but it's typically a female thing, isn't it? That here we, here we want um, men to lift us up, but we do very little to support one another. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Laura you know, Davies isn't in. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But we we did allow – so the criteria to get in the World Golf Hall of Fame used to only be World Golf Hall of, uh, LPJ Hall of Fame. So the only other way you could get in the World Golf Hall of Fame was um, outside of being an LPJ Hall of Famer was um, through lifetime achievement. Right, um, okay. Yeah, so, so the World Golf Hall of Fame – came to the LPGA um, when they restructured it all, probably was at like four, when, when Laura got in, so four inductions ago. Um, and what did they said, do to her? They held the ceremony at a yeah. time when she couldn't get back. It was just nuts, well, if I recall. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, well, where before that they, they said, you know, that, that there's more women that are deserving to be in the World Golf Hall of Fame. We want to change the criteria and – they put a committee together and I was like, I definitely agree with that. So we didn't want to offend um, the older players that developed the LPJ Hall of Fame, but I still believe that there's there was other women's careers that needed to be celebrated. Um, so I was all for it. And then came the announcement of um, when and where they were holding the first induction after that. And it was the Monday of the Men's Open Championship 
um, at St. Andrews, which sounds amazing, except that our US Open finished on the Sunday before that. And we knew that uh, Laura was going to be in unanimously. And I was, I, I, I point myself and Beth Daniel pointed it out to the World Golf Hall of Fame that it's not just the induction on the Monday. There's a whole, you know, the Sunday night, there's a, a dinner with just the, the World Golf Hall of Fame members in attendance, which is really special. It's probably mm. as special, if not more special, than the actual induction because it's is the rest of the World Golf Hall of Fame members welcoming the new members. Yeah. And it's just them. It's there's no And there's no sponsors or any other officials. It's just World Golf Hall of Fame members um, and, and their spouses. It's just a really nice evening. So Laura, I was like, if Laura makes the cut, she's not going to even be able to attend that and then she's going to have to rush home and I'm like, what if she gets the like? What if she gets a flight delayed? What if the tournament goes into Monday? You know, all these sorts of things. And I'm like, you you said you wanted more women in the in the Hall of Fame, but you're not making this. See, it doesn't seem that way. And as it turned out, Laura's flight was delayed, and she missed her own. And and not only that, I think the part that really annoyed me was. They pre-recorded her speech just in case she missed it. You know, she had travel delays. But Mike Davis, who was on the 18th green for the U.S. Women's Open presentations, made it because they flew privately to St. Andrews. And, and Laura they played. They didn't fly Laura. No. That is, so, how's that, <laughs> that okay? Was, That's not okay, is it? It isn't okay. No, it isn't okay, and yeah, and you know, a few of us let that be known because I was devastated for her. She was because Laura was really happy actually that it was going to be in St Andrews because her mum mm. hated to fly, so her mum was going to be able to drive up and be there, and all her family were there, and she wasn't there. Uh, and there's more to that story. I was, but I was very devastated for Laura. Um, and and in true Laura class, the next um, induction. Two years later, she flew over for 24 hours or 48 hours to be at the induction. You know, she wasn't in the U.S. It was it was uh, in New York City um, the Tuesday of um, the President's Cup. And uh, she flew over especially to be at the induction. She could have had a bit of taste in her mouth about how, how unwelcome she was into this yeah. club. Um, but she came over and, you know, we had a great time celebrating Lorena and, and Meg getting in, Meg Mellon. She's a gift we don't deserve in many ways, Laura, I think. I was just watching her. She's taken to Twitter and giving tips. No, out of the blue. Out of the blue. I'm like, what's going on Did you on see that? So this morning's tip was someone said, she was saying, you know, well, when there's water down the right, the last thing you want to have in your mind is don't hit it in the water. And then her next tip was, well, here's me playing my next shot. I played this course a hundred times. It's the first time I've ever hit it in the water here. Yeah. <laughs> she was talking about it on the tee and there she is taking a uh, taking a drop. She's been a fabulous friend to you and I imagine in some ways a bit of a mentor uh, over the years. She's always been a huge supporter of yours and a huge supporter of golf here in Australia. Those people are so important, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Laura deserves a lot of credit for 
helping put women's golf on mm. the map in Australia. Um, she deserves even more credit for the LET has had its lean years in the last couple of years, but um, they could have been in more dire straits mm-hmm. um, in the in the 90s and, and the two, early 2000s if it weren't for Laura. And Laura's, going back to the LPGA um, Hall of Fame, Laura's uh, one major or two wins away from from being in there. And through the peak of her career in the 90s, she was going back and playing 15 events a year in Europe. In Europe. Um, and if she chances and, not to win those two tournaments yeah, that she needs. You know, she was winning when she went back there, but if it weren't for her supporting um, her home tour, she she would be well and truly inside the, you know, have made the numbers for the LPGA Hall of Fame. So, And what a player, just ripping drivers off the deck, just, yeah. just punching up a bit of turf and sitting <laughs> the ball and smacking the driver down the fairway and just yeah. ask her about, her golf swing, she knows nothing. I don't know. Swing planes, no. don't know about them. Yeah, uh, that's why I find fade there. Just <laughs> so amazing. funny that she's giving lessons <laughs> on Twitter because she's never taken a lesson <laughs> in her life. So that's, it's humoring me every day to see it. Coaches all over the world are cringing at every time she <laughs> mentions that you should do this and you should do that. She's off pencils and Coke bottles. She's I can't even those. believe she's even thought about how she actually plays the shot, like to actually explain <laughs> it. You know, like normally she just gets up and does it. She is definitely one of uh, one of those. Last thing, speaking of players, uh, who have been the ones over the years that have impressed you most and who do you look at in the current crop? Well, I'll ask about women in particular, the old PGA. Uh, it's a seemed a bit of a time of parity at the moment. I, I honestly think that we need to set up our golf courses a little differently because I, mm-hmm. I feel like the way we're setting our courses up right now just allows there to be no dominant players. And I think... I think our tour, if you if you look at just even in the, the 25 years that I've been a member and, and prior to that, I think it serves us well when there's one or two dominant players because that's who you're talking about and then the, follow, the, the following pack, it's the conversation of what do they have to do to, to get past them and, and it's watching that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I think our courses – 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, was set up in such a way that the cream did really rise to the top. And I, and I feel like it's it, it's not that way as much now. And I, and I feel like you wouldn't have to. And it's not just adding length, but I think we can increase green speeds, not make them so soft. I mean, obviously, weather plays a part in that. But, you know, we can play a course with no rain all week and, and our greens don't get any firmer and they don't, don't get any faster. So more difficult. Um, yeah, slight, just slightly. I don't think it changes the winning score, but you don't finish three shots behind and finish 20th. Um, you finish three shots behind and finish in the top 10. I, I, I really don't believe it It really alters the, the winning score or even the cut. I, I think the standard is so high now. Like, cuts are really low. Like, I, I have trouble predicting not that i've ever predicted the cut but i'm i'm i've been surprised at times as to what the cuts have been you know even in our majors you could say at the start of the week you'd think three four over will be the cut and one over even pars the the cut there's enough quality of players there now that i think they're doing the the cream of the crop and injustice by not setting the courses slightly harder do you think that's a deliberate ploy on the part of lpga to a staff to 
to have a lot of players making a lot of birdies so the players look better. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean, because the players complain. Anybody who says otherwise is a fool and hasn't been to yeah. watch women's golf because they're amazing talents. It's, poss- it's possibly that. It's possibly that. Um, I think another big factor is, is slow play. Um, so if we make it slightly harder, we're going to take longer to play. Is it a problem, slow playing? Some players think it's not a problem. I think, do you think it is? yeah, I think golf, all, all of golf could do with, with making it a little bit quicker. You don't want to miss your TV window. We don't get the luxury of going 15 minutes into the, the Sunday night news. The television stations pay the men to televise, so it doesn't matter if it runs over. We pay the television stations to televise, so if we run over, we pay. So, so there is an emphasis on on making sure that we finish in our TV window, and um, I think there's a worry that if we, and this is just my opinion, I don't know if this is actually what is is spoken about, but I believe there's a worry that making the courses harder will lead to us missing TV windows on weekends. Right, that's a legitimate concern. Then, if that's the case, isn't it? Because you yeah. don't want that. But like I said, I don't believe by. You know, I, I just feel like some of the things that are lost in the way courses are set up these days is distance control into the greens because the greens are soft. So if you're a couple of yards, you hit it a couple of yards too far, it just means your putt's six foot longer. Not if you if the greens are a little firmer, it could mean that you're over the back or you come up short because you're trying to hit the shorter club in there. But I still don't believe it changes the overall winning score. I just don't think the leaderboards are as bunched as many. And I and yeah. I think and I think the better players win more. I I don't think you see some of the winners that we see. In t- well, now that you're in course design, these things are very much uh, part of your thinking. What is the best way to separate good players in terms of course setup? Um, you know, length is a part of it, but our courses have gotten longer over the years. But where we lengthen it is we, we lengthen our par five so they're all three shotters even for the long players and like you said before when do the guys hit a five iron you know it might be on a par five um and if that's that's if it's a long par five so i i feel like sometimes shortening a course mm-hmm. could make it it could well shortening par fives that's where that's where you gain the score and then and then if you're making greens a little firmer a little faster and even if you're making the the fair, if if you can control it, if we don't have weather, fairways a little firmer and faster, you know, it just makes all the the those shots a little bit more precise. And and who are the players that are the best at being that precise? And it's the best, you know. There's only going to be a certain amount of players that everyone has a chance to win every week, and everyone, you know, you'll still have unexpected winners. But you'll find those dominant couple of players. Mm-hmm. Um, if and it's not that much of a change, I don't think. Have you, you would have noticed the difference in equipment. Uh, you would have started with persimmon, but probably not played at a high yeah. level with persimmon. I think metal would probably have been fairly dominant by the time you were playing at a more elite level before you turned yeah. pro. Even I would have thought. Yeah, but- I got my first metal driver um, end of the eighties, eighty eight, I think. What, what was it? Do you remember? It was a um, Palm Springs. Do you remember that brand? Palm <laughs> Springs with, no. <laughs> a, with a boron graphite, graphite a, shaft in it. 
uh, when you used to read about boron and your eyes would get big when you'd read the golf yeah. magazines. Boron, this is amazing stuff. They're making yeah, golf clubs right. out of it. <laughs> so you would have seen um, that change. You've lived that change. Yeah, and at yeah. the elite level. Yeah. Do you hit it further now than you did in the past? A lot of the senior tour um, players in men's golf hit it further than they did when they were in their 30s. Yeah, I don't hit it. I, I, I hit my irons further. I don't hit my driver much further. I hit it about. I mean, I haven't definitely not increased any distance in the last ten years. Are the mishits um, different? Is the driver more forgiving? A lot of pros will tell you that the biggest change is that the driver used to be the hardest club to hit, and it's now become the easiest because it's yeah. so big. Yeah, you agree with yeah, that? I would, I would agree. I would agree that, um, yeah, your misses aren't aren't as bad. But see, I I think it's all down to the ball. The ball, your none of your misses are as bad with the ball mm-hmm. as they used to be. With you know a ballada, you'd only have to miss the sweet spot slightly, and that ball went nowhere, or the wind got it. Or now, you know, between the clubs and the ball, your misses are hardly anything compared to what they used to be. There's been some romance lost in equipment too, don't you think? Think back. I'm, I'll ask you to cast your mind back to some of your favourite clubs you've had over the years, the ones you lusted after when you were a kid, when you were 12 and 13. What was the set of clubs that you really wanted? I feel like there's less of that these days too, the joy yeah. of new clubs. Yeah. Well, I remember, um, you know, just before I got a metal wood was how beautiful wooden woods were and how beautifully crafted they were and the skill that you – you know, the assistant professionals got by learning how to put the binding on and, you know, just the, I mean, you know, they were, they were beautiful. Um, True and even when I, craftsmanship. Yeah. I remember um, getting my first set of Cleveland Classic Tour Actions. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I just thought they were so beautiful. They were. But, you were right. They were. They were. Yeah, they were. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. And I had those when I was about 15 or 16, uh-huh. um, but I wouldn't be good enough to hit them now, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that, but I take your, uh, take your broader point. Uh, well, last thing I wanted to ask you about, so this is partly about that male-female thing, and for a long time you've been sort of sponsorless in terms of your hat. You've had the boxing kangaroo on the hat. That's ridiculous, mm-hmm. isn't it? Julie Inkster is sponsorless. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I've had a great sponsor, um, uh, Nippon Shaft. Um, so they're on my, my hat now. I have been for the last few years. But, um, but Nippon's been um, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Shows a loyalty I, from you there as well, Kari, which is probably something we overlook often in this day and age. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've actually had a great relationship with a lot of Japanese companies. So, yeah, um, but Nippon, um, I, I truly believe with, with Nippon that being associated with a World Golf Hall of Fame golfer is what they're proud of. And it, and it has nothing to do with me being a woman or a man. Like, I think it's just that I'm, I'm a World Golf Hall of Fame player and they want to associate their brand with, with someone that has been at the, um, the elite level as I have because um, that, that's what they feel their product is and represents. But you're right. I mean, um, I asked a certain iron manufacturer last year for a set of irons and they 
were um, going to charge me. So no, see, I don't. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to that because I don't want to hear that. That's <laughs> so. That's, but I'll, I'll plug the company, Mizuno Australia, is sort, sorting me out with with clubs, which I had never played Mizunos before. But I've played a lot of uh, forged Japanese uh, irons and. They were horrified to hear that I was having might have to pay. I was never going to pay for for irons, um, but yeah. So so they've been really good to me in the last um, twelve months or so. For all of your achievements, Kari, I want you to add this one to the list because it might be the most impressive. I am speechless, and that never happens to me. <laughs> Seven majors, World Golf Hall of Fame, one of twenty three members of the LPGA Hall of Fame and somebody asked you to pay to use their golf clubs? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we talked about the world, w- the current world number one a couple of years ago had to pay for, for a three-wood, so. Um, Embarrassing for all of us. What does that say? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, it doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter to you because you can go somewhere else. And, but well, what that says is just – well, it? it didn't surprise me, put it that way. Um, really? Well, it, it happens. Like, it, it's it's out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens. There's some mainstay club equipment companies um, that have supported women's golf continuously. Ping, Callaway, they've, you know, they still have reps out on tour. They still have girls that have equipment contracts. They've supported women's golf um, year in and year out. Um, PXG is a new company, um, and they support a lot of the girls on tour now. And I think they have a rep on tour as well. But um, if you've been to a PGA Tour event, I mean, the equipment bands at those events are are crazy. We have our own equipment band that the LPGA pays for. Um, That's the only equipment band that um, travels with us now. And the reps that are out there, they – they work on clubs in our, our equipment band. But there's there's some companies that have stuck by, you know, women's golf um, and there's some that come and go. And it's it's disappointing, but it is our, it's our reality. I, I actually think club equipment companies um, were more supportive of women's golf 20 years ago than they are now, which is shocking to me because I feel like, you know, we're more visible than we were 20 years ago. So that's, yeah, that's the part I don't understand. Makes sense of that. That's um, that's really quite disheartening. That's really quite disheartening. That, that bugs me. <laughs> yeah. And should that should bug everybody. That should bug all golfers. I can't imagine. Well, seven majors I had a look in terms of men's golf. I think you've got uh, Sarazen, Hagen. There's about five or six men's players. You'd be unthinkable for any of them to ever be asked to pay for any. It'd be like if someone asked you to pay a green fee at a golf course. That's insane. It's just... Yeah. Well, I think... So this is... This this I, I, I might put it into perspective. So I'm friends with a, a CEO of a, of a company over here and um, he saw that... Well, and, and I explained to him that a lot of the girls will have certain club equipment uh, carry wear their hat. And I said, 99% of those girls are wearing that hat for free. And so he was like, and I started asking around and I said to, to girls that were wearing the hat for free, 
I said, if a company offered you $10,000 a year to wear the hat, that's $10,000 more than you're getting. Would you wear it? And they said, oh, I'd have to think about it because then I might have to pay for my equipment. This is on the LPGA. This is on the LPGA. And these are girls, you know, these aren't the upper echelon girls, but and these are the girls that, you know. Well, they are. They're on the there. LPGA, Kari. Well, but, you know, <laughs> they they're are not the, like, I, I know what you're saying. They're not the but, Lexi Thompsons and the no, no, that's right. that we've been talking about. But they are the girls that pop up on TV every once in a while and they'll have a club manufacturer's hat on that they're getting that that brand on TV um, and another company would give them $10,000 to wear their hat and they're thinking about it because they would have to pay for their equipment. And I said, if you turn that deal down, you're essentially paying for your equipment anyway because you're turning down $10,000. Buy a lot of equipment for $10,000, aren't you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but that's that's the conundrum that some of the girls are in. There's something fundamentally wrong, isn't there, with that then as an industry? There's something fundamentally wrong if that's the case. We're not well, talking about just- junior girls or – I mean, there are probably amateur guys in Australia, maybe even play state-level golf, who have never paid for golf equipment. Yeah, well, I haven't paid for golf equipment since I was 14, so oh. you can imagine <laughs> getting asked to pay for – You would have been stabbed uh, at how much it costs, Kari. Yeah, <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> well, how much is it? Oh, you're kidding, aren't you? Um, that could make you depressed, couldn't it, thinking about that? If I'm a 14-year-old girl with some golf ability and I hear you tell me that seven majors and 25 years into one of the best careers in the game, someone's got the gumption to ask you to pay for a set of golf clubs – Maybe I want to be Elisa Healy instead of Kari Webb, who also could have been a professional golfer, should she, and probably still could, should she want to, she swings it. Well, she, yeah, she probably thinks she could be. <laughs> <laughs> she probably thinks she could be. Um, but, um, yeah, I think um, um, I think it's it, it just goes back to, for me, what we talked about Michael Wan saying, um, mm. our commissioner. It, it's, if we want, you know, and I think a lot of the golf world realizes that that the health and longevity of the game, it's imp- for that to continue and for clubs to to be um, healthy, and that therefore people buying golf equipment. There is a big push to grow the game in the women's space, um, and women playing and girls playing. So, it goes back to what's your business model. And, yes, I know that more men buy equipment than women. But if we can get more women to play golf, then they'll buy the equipment that Hannah Green plays or Minji Lee plays or, you know, Lexi Thompson plays. So I I feel like the whole golf industry has to be on board with this for there to be change. Mm. It can't just be um, can't just be Golf Australia. It can't just be, you know, the RNA. Everyone has to be on board. Us in and the media? Yeah, ev- everyone. How many more Hannah Greens and Minji Lees would we, we have if they went, mm. you know, they saw me and other women um, on covers of magazines? It's a very powerful thing. Can't see it, can't be. It really is powerful. Yeah, it's and even um, – I'm not sure. I can't remember which golf magazine I wrote to when I was a kid, but it's been reprinted. I wrote and asked for more women's golf content because there was none. 
And it's not like today where you can just get on the internet and look up women's golf and get your content. Um, I had encyclopedias and golf magazines and there wasn't anything in golf magazines. So I I didn't see it and still became it, but how many, how many gave up because they didn't see it? And still do. That's truly depressing, isn't it? It really is quite. Yeah. I, I, you know, I really think society's changing. I think because we're having these conversations, I mean, we didn't have these conversations 20 years ago. So mm. I, I feel like, again, I don't think it's just a, a, men, a male problem either. I, I feel like women need to lift each other up just as much as we're asking men to lift us up. You know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of things that have to change in society for those things to change, but I, I feel like just even having the conversation is, is progress. It's a step forward, isn't it? But it's yeah. The, the pace sure. is frustratingly slow sometimes. It, it feels yeah. Like. yeah. But uh, you know, even with Golf Australia's initiative with Vision 2020, 2025, they've at least put a mm-hmm. put a date on it. Yeah. Um, Tangible, isn't it? Just even within Australia, if we can get everybody on board and grow it within Australia, maybe maybe we're the leaders. Wouldn't that be cool? That you know, we're not following the big guns that we're, we're setting the standard. One of the absolute greats of the game, Carrie. It's been something I wanted to do for a long time. It's been fabulous of you to take so much time. You've been incredibly generous. Really appreciate you doing it. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rod. It's great. There's an old saying in this business that you should never meet your heroes because all too often they disappoint simply by being normal human beings. Well, for mine, the exact opposite is true for Kari Webb because the fact that she's so normal and so human actually only serves to make one admire her even more. Well, that's it for episode 21, but make sure to come back next time because we're going to meet another candidate for the most addicted player in the game when we're joined by 1983 Australian Open champion Peter Chook Fowler. Whenever he played, we played for double the prize money that we were playing for when he wasn't playing. So, um, you know, Greg, if you ever hear this, uh, thanks very much for that. (laughs) That's next time on The Thing About Golf.